iPhone switchboard. Victor confirmed that he could, which was not quite a lie. Schwenter then asked if he could speak French. Here, the truth was unavoidable. The assistant manager made a show of disappointment, and then gave him the job on the spot. It was only when he began his first shift that Victor understood the nature of this generosity. Schwenter had a lover who often called the hotel— French was the language of their adultery. The new telephonist was quite unable to understand its breathless details. Every evening at seven o'clock, Victor went to the topmost floor of the hotel and took his place in a hot little room a few doors down from the resident hairdresser. Here, lights pulsed insistently. Operators demanded attention, and with a Bakelite headset clamped to his ear, he slotted jacks into sockets and connected the callers to the called. At ten o'clock on the last night of August 1939, a brisk military voice asked to be put through to the grill room. Victor obeyed, transferring the call to Canalidis, the basement cloakroom attendant, but kept the switchboard key in the forward position, allowing him to eavesdrop on the conversation. The caller asked if Randolph Churchill was in the building, Canalidis had little trouble confirming his presence. Churchill was the son of one of Britain's most prominent politicians, and so notorious for his foul-mouthed intolerance of hotel staff that waiters bribed each other in order to avoid serving him. "'He's in the bar,' replied the attendant. "'May I ask who is calling?' The voice on the end of the line gave a sharp response. "'You may not.' A few moments later, Churchill had the receiver in his hand. Randy? asked the caller. Yes. The Germans bomb Warsaw tomorrow morning, nine o'clock. The significance of this exchange was not lost on Victor. It was as good as a declaration of war, confirmation that Neville Chamberlain's policy of appeasement had reached its end game, a signal that history had clicked back round to 1914. As soon as Churchill had rung off, Victor put through a call to a friend who worked at the BBC. Before he could communicate the news, however, he heard another voice on the line. "'Operator,' it said, "'I'd be careful what you repeat.' The line fell silent. Victor followed suit. He spent an uneasy night in that hot little room at the top of the Ritz, reflecting on this unfriendly warning— and wondering when the security services had begun tapping the phones. At the end of his shift, he was relieved to step out into Piccadilly, walk through the quiet West End streets, settle himself at his favourite table at Elena Giocopazzi's cafe near the Theatre Royal, and work his way through several pots of coffee and a packet of Craven A. At ten-thirty he walked out to the newspaper stand by Covent Garden tube station, and bought a copy of the morning edition of the Star. The headlines carried no news of any bombardment. He flipped to the back page, which bore a gloomy announcement about the cancellation of Saturday's races at Northolt Park, and scanned the list of the runners and riders scheduled to churn the turf in Manchester that afternoon. Two, he noted, were the property of the Aga Khan, the millionaire imam, diplomat, and Ritz resident, on whose horses the hotel staff placed loyal bets. 
The star kept the right-hand column of the page blank to list the names of last-minute withdrawals from the field, but the international crisis had obliged its editor to stop the press in acknowledgment of something graver than a waterlogged course or a bruised fetlock. A line cabled by a reporter from the British United Press Agency confirming that at nine o'clock that morning, ninety minutes before the star hit the stands, the outskirts of Warsaw had felt the impact of a rain of Luftwaffe incendiaries. Half an hour later the story had already migrated to the front page. Danzig proclaims return to the Reich, boomed the paper. Germans bomb Polish town. By the time I met Victor Legg, two years before his death in 2007, his name had become synonymous with the Ritz. It was an institution to which he had given half a century of his life, three years on the switchboard, and the rest behind...